listeners, before we get to this episode of Problem Solvers, here is a word from our sponsor. In today's world of growing regulations and strict customer requirements, compliance is essential. And that's why there's Leica. Leica is a platform where businesses can pass security questionnaires from customers, adapt to newer regulations, and maintain all documents in one place. The platform's automations, workflows, and integrations make passing audits and minimizing risk easier than ever. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with new regulations because every customer gets a dedicated compliance officer to help them understand requirements, implement policies, and fulfill ongoing responsibilities. Leica's platform even builds and automates compliance for standards like SOC2 and HIPAA with hands-on experience each step of the way. So if that sounds like an amazing solution for your giant compliance headache, then here's what you got to do. Problem Solvers listeners get 20% off when they join. Just visit heylica.com slash problem solvers to get their exclusive deal. That is H-E-Y L-A-I-K-A dot com slash problem solvers to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. And now on with the show. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. All right, it is pop quiz time, and here is the question. Can you define the term network effect? Network effect. Can you? I mean, I think that we all have some general idea of what we're talking about here with network effect, right? Networks, very important. Network sounds like community. Community, extremely important to build around your company. You want to build that community and you want that community to grow on its own. And But okay, uh, what is the network effect? If you cannot define this, don't worry. You are not alone. I was just reading a book called The Cold Start Problem by Andrew Chen. He is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm. And he writes, he was writing about how he got into venture capital and then was in all these meetings with all this jargon. And one of the phrases that came up all the time was network effect. And he writes, while network effects and its related concepts were often invoked, there was no depth to the idea. No metrics that could prove if it was really happening or not. In my work with startups, after a decade and a half of living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I've heard the network effect used a zillion times in conversation, sometimes over coffee, in meetings, or in investor discussions, but the concept was always discussed at a superficial level. So how do you hear something thousands of times and still not quite understand it? Well, that is what Andrew wrote. And now, I guess, let's turn to the expert for a definition of network effect. It is a product that gets more valuable the more people that are on it. This, of course, is Andrew. Hey, I'm Andrew Chen. I'm general partner at Andreessen Horowitz on the consumer team. I'm on the boards of companies like Clubhouse, Substack, and a dozen more. And Andrew wrote this book, The Cold Start Problem, to be the definitive guide to network effects. How to build them, how to grow them, why they are so important. And I should say up front here that although Andrew really focuses on tech companies, this concept is not exclusive to tech companies because what we're really talking about here is simply anything that is more valuable the more people are using them, which means that, of course, anytime that you build a community, anytime that you focus on your customer and growing that customer and understanding what attracts them to you and then what also makes them feel a part of the mission such that they want to tell other people, well, now you are 
building a network effect. And in our conversation, Andrew and I go into how this applies to technology, but then how it applies outside as well. How do you find that first core customer? How do you expand beyond them? This is, I have to say, one of the most practical and insightful conversations that I've had in a long time about something that I know every entrepreneur grapples with. So I'm really excited to bring it to you and I don't want to ramble on anymore. Let's just get to it. After the break, me and Andrew Chen talking network effects and how it applies to you. Entrepreneurs are busy. And let's be honest, sometimes we complain about how busy we are and then we feel guilty because everyone is so busy too, but that doesn't mean we're any less exhausted. And anyway, what can you do about it? I'll tell you what, you can work with Belay. Belay is revolutionizing productivity with its virtual assistant, bookkeeping, and social media strategist services for growing organizations. You can delegate emails, scheduling, travel booking, planning meetings, and more. This could be life-changing. I mean, Belay calculates you can reclaim 15 hours every week by delegating just five tasks. Delegation is the cost of your sanity and the linchpin to survival of organizations everywhere. Ready to learn more? You can get a free download of their CEO's latest book on how to delegate like a pro, which is called Rise Up and Lead Well, How Leveraging an Assistant Will Change Your Life and Maximize Your Time. Just go to Belay Solutions, that's B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com slash problem solvers to get it. All right, we're back. And I am today talking with Andrew Chen of Andreessen Horowitz about his new book, The Cold Start Problem and about network effects. And in the spirit of problem solvers, I wanted to enter this subject from the perspective of a problem. I hear so many entrepreneurs tell me that they are starting a new dating app, a new social network, a new some kind of something that requires a lot of people to be involved all at the same time. And inevitably, those things fail. Very few, as we know, dating apps and social networks and all these other things uh, ever reach the general public consciousness. There are a lot of reasons why those things fail, but I think one of them is right there in the title of your book. Why do those things fail? Yeah, well, I, I think that this is this is a really important question for founders that are working on really, really big ideas like the next social network and the next big dating app and all of that, but also for, for, for founders that are trying to build new communities or they're trying to launch new NFT projects or anything that requires exactly as you said, Jason, a lot of people to be at the same place at the same time, because all these products, as, as we've discussed, are different ways to connect folks, sometimes for work, sometimes for dating, sometimes for, for commerce, sometimes for communication. And I want to just use a really short example. When the Tinder folks, Sean Rad and, and Justin and, and John and Ryan and all those guys first started Tinder, they actually built all the right features. They actually built the swiping feature. They added profiles. They did. They got, they nailed all the features. But in the earliest days, they actually were just inviting all of their friends on Tinder and just saying, hey, you should, you should try out this app. And what they found was they could just not get enough people on the app at the same time in order to use it. And so what experience does a new user get? Well, they come in, they swipe a few users, they run out of people. And they feel like if people that I want aren't in this app right now, then it's not useful. And they had to actually go do this whole crazy thing where they threw a birthday party on the University of Southern California campus and they posted bouncers out on the door and they got people to install the Tinder app. And they did all this stuff in order to get 500 people into the app at the same time. And that's actually what solved the cold start problem for them. And so, so the, the way I describe it in, in the book is really that 
the the thing that all of these different kinds of products and, and communities and networks have in common is that on one hand, if if your customers come to this product and there's not enough other people around, they're just going to bounce. But on the other hand, once you get to the point where the product becomes more useful as more users are on it, then you get something magical. Then you get network effects. You get the the forces that have propelled technologies like the telephone and like Facebook and like all these amazing products to become as ubiquitous as as, as they are in, in the world today. So you use the phrase network effect, which you write in your book is a commonly used phrase that a lot of people don't actually understand. And so I want to have you define it, though I wonder if in defining it, you can also tell me if this might be more casually known to a lot of people as the empty restaurant problem, which is to say you walk into a restaurant, it's empty, and you turn around and you leave because who <laughs> wants to eat at the empty restaurant? Is that, Am I thinking about basically the same problem here, but the technology version of it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, th- I, think, I think it's a very specific one. So, so I, one of the case studies that I, I use in the book is Theodore Vail, who was chairman of AT&T in 1905, actually wrote a amazing investor update that was so prescient. And he says, the telephone is, is, is useless on its own. It's not, it's not even a toy. It's not a scientific instrument. It's only valuable in who it lets you call, right? It's only, and, and its value increases with the number of connections. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And the point of a product like the telephone and like a marketplace company like Airbnb or like a product like Zoom is its value is even if you nail all the right features, it's all about who can you use the product with, right? And so what what I would tell you, Jason, is that 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 is the core concept of a network effect. It is a product that gets more valuable the more people that are on it. Now, now the restaurant thing that's a really interesting uh, metaphor. And I would say on one hand, it is accurate in some ways because obviously a really busy restaurant that a lot of people talk is one that you may more be more likely to frequent. The question becomes. If a lot of people are in the restaurant, to what extent does that make my experience better? And you would say that for some people, it doesn't at all because you're going with your your family, right? And and so actually having a lot of people around, you know, maybe it adds the ambiance, but it's not really a thing. But maybe what's more accurate is like a singles bar, right? What's more accurate is, is, uh, you know, if you go to a place and you're looking to meet a certain set of people and it's completely empty, then you definitely, it's definitely not valuable versus if it has all the right people then and and you're single then off you go it's so much more enjoyable um because there are actually people at the, in the bar itself right oh that's great that's a really nice refinement of the metaphor so okay so we're talking about the network effect which you just described as what happens when a product gets more valuable as more people use them that's literally just me reading from your book and that raises the question of course which you uh, you told that brief story about tinder but let's look at it more broadly okay you launch something that requires lots of people to be using it in order for it to be valuable. The more people that use it, the more valuable it gets. Where the hell do the people come from? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, I think it, it turns out that the quality of these people matter a lot and how interconnected they are matter a lot. So w- one of the common things in, in my job as a venture capital investor, I see, see this a lot, which is startups feel like they want to launch and how do they launch? Well, they launch by going to big blogs, they go to, they want to do PR, they want to do press. And what happens is that gets you a lot of different users to show up, but none of the users know each other. So because they don't know each other, you might feel like, oh, I'm getting a thousand users. I'm getting 10,000 users. Okay, great. But like, if they don't actually, if they're not there in the product at the same time to connect with each other, those thousand users aren't that valuable. In comparison, 
one of the concepts that are, is part of my theory is the concept of an atomic network, which is how many users do you need to be using a product at the same time that know each other such that the product is valuable? And a product like Zoom or Slack, well, Zoom, you only need two or three people in order to, for the product to be extremely valuable. Slack, maybe you need five or 10 people in the same company. A product like Airbnb, on the other hand, or Uber, you actually need hundreds of listings in a city for Airbnb, which is a marketplace that's connecting hosts and guests, again, another type of network to be valuable. And so these, the, the sizes of these atomic networks is, is very important. So one of the core ideas is it's not enough to just go and do a big announcement or do any of these things. You actually need to be very, very focused and targeted on what is a very densely connected population that you can onboard into your product at the same time. I think that's exactly why so many companies, even though they have big, big goals in their heads, you know, they want to get to millions of users, they want to get to millions of dollars in revenue from customers. There's a recurring theme across all of these huge companies, which is that they actually start with really, really small, densely connected groups. Facebook, Tinder, Snapchat, they all started with high schools, individual high schools and college campuses. Dropbox and Slack and Zoom and a lot of these, they start by onboarding individual teams within larger companies. And then it spreads from team to team to team. And similarly for the marketplaces like eBay, you know, they start in these little niches like collectibles. They're doing little collectible cards and Pez dispensers famously and all that, all that good stuff before they start adding on music and, and entertainment and, and many of these other things. And so I, I, I think this is a the re- really core aspect of all these businesses. Yeah, that's so interesting. As you were saying it before you started listing off the companies, of course, the one that I thought of was Facebook. And it makes me think, oh, you know, that Facebook started on a college campus wasn't an accident I mean, maybe, I mean, I guess it probably was an accident of, of fate, right? In that it wasn't that Mark Zuckerberg understood network effects at that time and knew that this was the way to start. Or maybe he did. I don't know. I haven't asked him. But rather that that is just simply the nature of how to grow something like this. You, you have to start inside of a coherent community and then expand outward. That's right. That's right. And where it's very important that people know each other, if the product is meant to connect people, that becomes important. And, and by the way, I mean, to, to, to Zuckerberg's credit, before Facebook, he actually had a earlier instantiation of the product, which was called FaceMash. And what he did was he actually crawled all the photos of all the various you know, yearbooks and everything um, on the Harvard campus and made kind of a, a, a little dating app where you could you know, rate the people that you wanted to match with. And it was sort of an early experiment, but he actually got a very large percentage of the, of, of the college campus into his product. So I think he had that right intuition, even if he may or may not have had the vocabulary for it that, that, that I'm laying out. I think that intu- intuition is very much there. Yeah. Andrew, I want to take us down a detour here before we get back to network effect, which is I was talking, I promise this is going to circle back around. I was talking yesterday to a friend of mine who works in it. He he runs a CPG company. He's completely outside of technology. And he's going to start, he's going to launch a crowdfunding campaign. And he wanted my advice on how to blast the news of this crowdfunding campaign as far and wide as possible. And the more we talked about it, the more I said, you know what, I think that you're missing an opportunity here. And the opportunity is that you already have a community. You have a community of users and also you have a community within the world that you serve, right? His CPG company is related to the fitness world. And so he's got all these connections at at gyms and so on. And I said, I think that you need to start with the coherent community, the people who like understand it more and know people who use your product and who can rally around it 
in a way that I don't think you're going to get if you just try to go for like mass distribution of information, because that's going to be an incoherent number of people who may or may not care about you and certainly won't connect and talk about you. And anyway, now you can see how this relates. As I hear you talk about how to start growing a user base and that it isn't just about numbers, but it's about people who know each other. I wonder if you think that that insight is transferable outside of just the the narrow thing that we're talking about now, which is starting a company that requires a network effect. Yeah, I think that what you end up finding is, and, and let's actually use let's actually use the fitness world as an example. You take a community like CrossFit, which is known to be they're they're so evangelical about you know what they're doing and they're so organized and everything. And at the core of a uh, community like that really is the fact that there's these CrossFit boxes and people come to CrossFit and you feel like you're part of a network and you do things together and it is more fun the more people are in your box, right? And if, if people that you like are, are, are in there. And it also creates an opportunity for you to bring in your friends or your family and try to recruit them into what you're doing. And, and, and so I think, I think the important idea with, with... And this is obviously completely an offline product. There's no, there's no tech involved at all. But I think what's really interesting about that is it illustrates many of the same ideas because then you start to think about, well, instead of launching a CrossFit-like program or SoulCycle or one of these, and try to do it all over the world all at the same time, what does it look like to start in a community in one place and to just get it working once? And if you can prove that you can, you can make it work once, then it's a lot easier to hypothesize how you would then stamp that out and add it to more cities and more regions and more continents and more languages and more, more of all that as a method of scaling, as opposed to think of the, thinking of these things as they're kind of like, broadcast mediums because because they're not right i think i think in, inherently it is about how do you bake in the idea of a network into your product or service in addition to having your your marketing strategy also take advantage of this sort of one network at a time type approach we're going to take a quick break but when we come back more with me and andrew chen if you're listening to this podcast you must recognize the value of asking questions at Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com powered by how. All right, we're back talking with Andrew Chen. And just a reminder, before the break, Andrew had been talking about how the network effect applies to things way outside of tech, like CrossFit. Well, by, by, by the way, actually, maybe, 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 I'll, maybe I'll add another little anecdote, yeah. which I think is, is a really fun one, which is the invention of credit cards. I mean, credit cards is, is not, it's not really a, a tech thing, right? Especially because the invention of credit cards was, was many, many decades ago. And, but, but if you think about what is required to get a new credit card system to work, well, your favorite stores don't accept credit cards yet. People don't have the credit cards yet themselves, and they don't know how to use them. And then you have the banks that actually need to underwrite all this stuff. So there's a really, really interesting story about how the first credit card was actually launched. And what they did was they picked a specific city where a lot of folks were all on the same bank. And they launched this, this program, which is called Bank AmeriCard. And they, they literally did the two things, which were really amazing. First, they went to the downtown area. And they basically told them, they explained to them, look, we're about to send, and this was in Fresno, California. They said, we are going to send 
tens of thousands of these credit card things to your customers. They're going to show up and start trying to use them. Maybe you should accept credit cards, right? <laughs> and, and they required some ed- education, but they actually got um, a good chunk, I think over half of the merchants in the city to actually get to pick up these credit card machines. And then on the flip side, what they did was they literally mailed live activated credit cards. No, no, no underwriting. They didn't know how to underwrite people at this point. So they were just like, you know, let's just send credit cards to everybody. And they literally sent it to everyone. And then people just had these credit cards and they just started using them. And once they proved that it could work in one city in Fresno, they were then able to then expand to all the other California cities and then and then go from there. And then now, of course, credit cards is a major you know, part, part of our daily existence. But that's another great example that's com- completely a non-tech example of something that, you know, where, where they were able to, to solve the cold start problem in that way. Oh, that's so interesting. I did not know that about the credit card industry. And that's fascinating. There are obviously so many different directions we can go here, but I'm just going to take one additional step, which is you start it with one community. At what point do you know you're ready to try it with another community? Yeah, I think when when the numbers are really small, and, and we often, when I'm investing in startups, Clubhouse is a great example of this. When we led the Series A of Clubhouse, we, we invested over $10 million into that company. It actually only had 500 daily active users. And so really small, really small number of users. And I, and I was actually user 104 in that community. Now, now, the interesting thing is even with 500 daily active users, you could do these analyses, like you could look at the retention curves. You could say, of 100 users that join, what percentage of them are still active a day later, seven days later, 30 days later? And you can start to understand, okay, it looks like Clubhouse, at least at the time, going over 500 users was already enough of, a, of an atomic network that you should be able to layer more networks on top. And so I think one, one, of, the, one of the big things I tend to look at, especially for kind of daily use products, is a day 30 percentage of over 15% as, as, as a good benchmark. So that means that after 30 days, you still have 15% of your users that signed up are using it on day. If, if, it's a, if it's a subscription product, I might have a different set of benchmarks. For a subscription product, I'm trying to make sure that you know if, if, you're, if you're a SaaS, a B2B SaaS product, you're doing collaboration, you want to make sure after a year that you get at least half those users are still paying you. And so what does that mean for month one or month two or month three? Okay, well, that means you're probably only losing 5% in, in the early months, and then you're starting to lose more like 2% in months 10, 11, 12 in order for the math to work. And so I often look at that even the, even when they are very, very small numbers in order to figure out if it's working. But like, look, I, I, th- I think the other part is if you're... This is the best part about these products that are built on networks and built on communities is that if it's working your users in your community will be telling their friends. They're going to be telling their family. They're going to be bringing new people in. And so you're going to see that top line number also start to really move. So the other big thing that I look at is, is the product on its own growing 20% a month, 30% a month? You know, It's kind of big double digit numbers. And if they're doing that, even on small basis, even if we're talking about a couple hundred users or customers growing 20, 30% a month, that's incredible. That's a, that's a very strong signal that something's working. And if you don't see that, what's your advice to entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out why they're not growing? Yeah, I think that, that's when you have to figure out, okay, is the reason because the product features aren't there? And in many cases, they are. And you can talk to your customers. You often feel it yourself as, as, a, as a founder. Although I find founders usually, no matter what their product is, they always think it's not good enough, which is, which is part, of, part of the magic of being a founder. So that might be one part of it. But the other part of it is often that it's kind of like that Tinder case I, I was talking about, which is you need 500 people all using it at the same time, and you don't, you've only gotten 50. And so people seem like they don't like your product, 
but in reality, you just don't have enough people. Right. And so, so I think, I think you have to precisely diagnose what are kind of the root causes. And that's often very tricky. And then I think you have to create a series of hypotheses and experiments and start checking them off to make sure that, you know, that, that, that you're validating the right things before you, you've decided that you, you want to completely change your product altogether. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, let me just offer a final anecdote slash question to land this on the street level, because we, this is a show listened to by a broad range of entrepreneurs, many of whom are not going to launch billion dollar tech companies, <laughs> which, which obviously many, uh, you, you, you never know. It's true. You never know. That's true. Absolutely, absolutely never know. But I will tell you that I was just talking with one of them earlier this week who has a very fashion line, which, you know, was so I guess by its very nature is not going to be a billion dollar tech company. And she was really frustrated because she was just not seeing the kind of growth that she wanted. And she was like spending money that she doesn't really have to advertise in all these different places. And she was frustrated and basically was asking me if I thought that she should give up. And I asked her what had worked. And she said one thing had worked, which was an ad buy in this hyper niche magazine that serves fans of horror movies or something. And uh, and I said, I said, do you know why that worked? And she didn't really know why that worked. And I said, well, I feel like before you give up, you need to know why that worked. Because maybe you're casting too wide of a net and your audience is actually there, but they're really niche. And they have a community that you need to get engaged in. And it's very possible that you just haven't shown up to the right party yet. And I tell you that as a, well, really just to partially to prompt a response, but also because I, I wonder if you if you see in that very, very small non-tech example, something that is at the foundation of the thing that you're talking about that is also key to the success yeah. of very large companies, which is that, look, sometimes it's the product, sometimes it's the features, sometimes it's that you cast too wide a net, sometimes it's just that you hadn't found yet where your community is, and you should figure out if that community exists and you just haven't connected with them yet. I think that's totally right. I think that in a world where you're very transactional with your community, the natural answer ends up being spend spend money on marketing. And I think that that's what I hope is exposed in, in the book is the idea that ultimately it's very, very powerful to build a network around your product. If you are a hotel chain, that's great. It's a very simple business, right? You rent buildings and you're, you're renting rooms. It's great. But when you then compete with something like Airbnb, which actually has no hotel rooms at all, no buildings at all, and it's just an interface for you to, to do that, well, that's like an unstoppable competitor. I mean, that's, like, that's, that's really hard to compete right. against. And so I think going back to this fashion example, what I would say is on one hand, yes, maybe, maybe the issue is, is that this, this founder needs to figure out more advertising um, avenues. The other way, just to flip it on its head, is to say, well, is there something special about that community or that audience that the founder should actually build a community and a blog around or a podcast around or something and start to build a network kind of around the idea? And then, of course, the fashion can be one of the forms of monetization, but maybe there are many other forms of monetization that an audience like that would actually like. And the benefit to that is if you own this asset, which is this network, that you can sell products into over time, then the advantage is, well, that audience, if you're doing a really, really good job engaging them and giving them content and, and talking to them and so on, they're going to go recruit other customers that look and act like them. As opposed to this model where 
you're just spending money on, on Facebook and Google and dollars are just flying out the door. And you feel like you're kind of renting an audience as opposed to owning one. Yeah. Andrew, thanks so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed reading The Cold Start Problem and I think it's going to be extremely useful for so many people. So I appreciate you writing it and spending the time talking to me about it. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.